Chapter 15 of Look to the Stars. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Look to the Stars by Willard E. Hawkins. Chapter 15. From a narrow strip of shore that fringed a murky sea, sheer cliffs rose, black, beetling, forbidding. In one direction, the rampart lost itself in the haze of a bleak horizon. In the other, it merged into a rocky but sloping ascent. The sea itself was a muddy hue, reflecting feebly the rays of a sun, which seemed to begrudge what little warmth it spared. The sky, gray though nearly cloudless, seemed overcast with a dusty haze. Where the sea washed into a narrow inlet at the foot of the last great promontory along the line of ramparts, a boulder distinguished from others because it seemed grayer, smoother, more friable, contributed to the muddiness of the sea. Each time the tide rose and the water swept over it, they softened and dissolved some of its outer coating. As the tides receded, they left a blob of mud, which slowly hardened through exposure to the sun, only to soften and disintegrate a trifle more at the next return of the tide. It was an irregular tide. Its surges occurred in unpredictable cycles, and in varying degrees of intensity. On a few occasions its high level reached a mark far up the cliff. On others it forgot to recede for a time, and yet again it was such feeble tide that it barely washed the base of the boulder, which was in reality a clod of hard-baked clay. Now and again after the tide receded. Some furry object lay gasping in the sun, and presently scattered toward the less precipitous stretch of shore. Or a bird fluttered to the rampart, or a cricket vented a dismal chirp and sought the damp underside of a rock. In a nearby cleft, a scattering of seeds had been caught in the backwash of tide, and blades of grass clung tenaciously to a meager deposit of soil. How long the sea had washed this blob of clay could only have been estimated by some observer, who noted its size when it was first carried down to water level in a rock slide and watched the progress of its disintegration. But there was no observer to note these things. There came a day, a day like many other, cloudless, murky, cold, when it would have been apparent, had such an observer existed, that embedded with the blob of mud was a foreign object. It might have been a log, for all the amorphous outlines revealed. Whatever it was, 
the water continued to wash at intervals over the coating and gradually carried it away. As this continued, the uncovered portions of whatever lay within gradually seemed to lose their gray, desiccated look. And there came another day when the coating was gone, and after the tide had receded and the sun had poured its rays down with unusual warmth for some hours, a quiver ran through the outstretched object. The tide returned as it gently lapped the figure on the sands. Some instinct of preservation stirred in that which had been nothing but a core of foreign matter in a blob of clay. It shivered slightly and squirmed to a higher position on the shore. When the tide next returned, the creature, born of a mud clod, was haunched in a sitting position, gazing with dull and comprehending eyes at the bleak prospect which was coming into focus before it. Just when awareness of himself returned to Dave Marlin, he could not have told. There was a borderline phase in which a bewildered, naked creature stumbled along the rocky shore with only vague consciousness of self. Memories of the past mingled fantastically with the present. Impressions of an endless journey, of a huddled group within a shadowy interior, of black, star-studded vistas, were intertwined with breaking waves. A sense of chill discomfort and a dull yearning toward the coppery disk that hung in the mist overhead. Knowing hunger in his vitals gradually thrust the present into dominance. He dropped down and drank thirstily of the lapping fresh water sea. This partly appeased the discomfort, but a grab which he pounced upon a moment later satisfied it more. Eagerly he set about finding other objects to steal that ever-present hunger. Instinctively, the man had turned toward the less precipitous region. Grim and forbidding though it was, it bore some evidence of life, increasingly more evidences on the rocky hillocks that receded from the barren shore. There were clumps of grass and bushes, an occasional bird winging overhead, and here and there glimpses of squirrels, chipmunks, and other small animals. A tawny streak flashed through the bush. At the squeal of its victim, Morlin dived toward the spat, frightened the creature from its keel, and hungrily appropriated the squirrel, in the moment of satisfying his ravenous hunger with the warm bleeding flesh he was troubled by no memories of the process to which flesh was subjected before eating in that shadowy former existence. Somehow he lived, aimlessly wandering, slipping when darkness came in the shelter of the moment, constantly alert 
for something to appease the gnawing within him. More frequently than not, he went hungry, for the region was sparse in its vegetation and niggardly in sentient life. He chewed on roots, eagerly pounced on insect larvae, now and then caught or killed with wrecks some of the small animals and birds that his unceasing search flushed from cover. It is doubtful whether he at any time thought clearly. I am Dave Marlin, a man who once lived on a planet called Earth. His mind was far behind his body in recovering from the paralysis of disuse. A new excitement stirred him one day, farther inland. A thin column of smoke was rising. Smoke. The ascending smudge wakened something within him. Smoke was connected with that former life. It meant the presence of his own kind. He climbed toward it with frantic eagerness and presently looked down into a sheltered cleft of a valley. By his former standards, it would have seemed a barren strip indeed, but in comparison with the terrain surrounding, it was an Eden. Grass and scraggly bushes struggled for foothold on the hillsides. A brook trickled through the bottom and its banks revealed crude attempts at cultivation. Stunted growths that looked like corn stalks struggled across a narrow field. A gaunt heifer was tethered on one slope. The smoke rose from a smoldering fire on a blackened area in front of the cave. In the mouth of the cave squatted a woman, clothed in a shapeless garment of skins, suckling a scrawny infant. Incoherent, choking sounds came from Marlin's throat as he descended upon this scene of domestic tranquility. At his approach, the woman glanced up, gave a shrill cry, and disappeared into the cave. From a crevice beyond appeared a man, likewise clad in skins, brandishing a crooked stick. At sight of Marlin, he stepped in his tracks, then scampered toward the cave, turning at the entrance as if to make a last desperate stand. Marlin came on with eager stride, but he stepped a few feet away and the two looked at each other. The cave dweller was undersized, bearded, and shaggy. His arms and legs protruded an ungainly fashion from the ill-fashioned skin garment. Something about the manner in which the sharp eyes gleamed at him through a tangle of overhanging hair struck a chord in Marlin's memory. Your, your link? He said thickly. The words came with difficulty from an accustomed lips. Slinky Link, remember? I'm Marlin. The woman's head emerged cautiously from behind her man. The scarred lip again prompted Marlin's memory. More Barstow? What you want? demanded Link. The words were thickly spoken, as if he, too, 
rarely used his speech organs. Truly, Marlin did not know what he wanted, nothing, perhaps, beyond the association for his own kind. For the first time, he realized that he was cold. He approached the smoldering embers and knelt over them, gratefully warming himself in the glow. The other two eyed him resentfully. But when the sand sank low, they prepared a frugal meal and gradually offered him a portion. He ate greedily of the hard, gritty cake of ground corn and morsel of half-cooked flesh, smacked his lips over the swallow or chew of thin milk, which they allowed him to drink from a crudely formed earthen cap. The urge to talk was strong within Marlin, to exchange views with this, perhaps the only members of his kind in all the region. But memories of the old life and speculations as to the manner of their arrival seemed to have little reality in the minds of the two. Maub was brooding and taciturn, wrapped in an animal-like concern for her scrawny infant. Link vaguely recalled that they had wandered until they came to this valley, where it was somehow easier to rest an existence than on the outer slopes. He had found two half-starved cattle, captured one, and Maul made him keep it alive for its milk. The other was a bull, but so far it had eluded his attempts at capture. He had learned to make fire, the primitive way, through striking certain kinds of rock together. These were his preoccupations. He quickly tired of the conversation and crawled into the cave to sleep. In the morning, there was less to eat. When Marlin sought to help himself to the fresh milking, Moore snatched the clay vessel and scuttled with it into the cave. Link thrust a piece of stringy meat into Marlin's hands, then caught up his stick and brandished it threateningly. This is our place, he snarled. You go. Marlin crammed the partly cooked flesh into his mouth. Why? He demanded. Eat too much, was the laconic response. Marlin reflected on this. He had not eaten much, but the little tasted good, and he wanted to stay. Go, insisted Link, prodding with his stick. He added as an afterthought. You're uncovered. Don't look nice. Marlin looked down at his sun-browned body in that vaguely remembered former existence he had worn clothes. Now he was naked. The thought shamed him. Disconsolately, he turned and plodded away. Thereafter, the recovery of his brain cells was more rapid. The old earth life still seemed incredibly remote as detached as though it belonged to another person. But upon its vague memories, he drew in order to create a more satisfying existence. He fashioned crude cutting implements and spears, 
by chipping stones and fitting them to handles made from tough growths of brush. He learned deft ways of making fire and usually cooked his meat. He pieced together an abbreviated garment of skins. Each day, he developed a new adaptations to the harsh environment. Usually, he was too tired to think of anything beyond the physical needs of the moment. But now and then, after a meal of unusual repletion, he lay on his back and gazed thoughtfully at the Capri sun or at the two small moons which, with their uncoordinated orbits, created such eccentricity in the tides. Then he recalled incidents of the past, of the strange journey in the clay-covered sphere, and speculated as to the mystery of his coming to this bleak new world, of the manner of its creation. Waking one morning, he was startled to find that a fire had been built, and there was an odor of scorching meat. Erect in one bound, he stared incredulously at the other man, who was nonchalantly making free with his camp. Kinda surprised, eh? For a moment, Marlin did not know the long-haired, bearded, skin-clad stranger. He peered uncertainly. You're... You're the chain, aren't you? The old maestro himself, grinned the other, came across your trail two days ago, campfires, footprints, nearly cocked up with you last night, but the dark overtook me. Guess we're the sole survivors. No, Marlin told him. More Barstow and Link, I ran across them back there. He waved an arm vaguely. More and slinky link, Duchesne laughed uproariously. That's good, is the little shrimp still balmy? Marlin scratched his head. I'd forgotten that, guess he got over it in a way. They've got a kid, and a cow kicked me out of my ear. It was good to have companionship, talking things over made things clearer. For one thing, he hadn't been able to understand at all how he came to be wandering over the face of this strange planet. Last thing I remember was struggling with someone, and the ooze closing over. Then I found myself stumbling along this coastline. Duchesne stared. Don't you know? He took Marlin down to a sheltered cove. There's a type of clay formation. You get so you can spat it by the collar. And where there's one chunk, you'll usually find several. Look for them above the tide level. Most of those below that line have been dissolved away. Here's a sample. He took the small lamp of clay. It seemed as hard-baked as earthenware, and immersed it in a pool. It'll take some time. We might look for more. In the end, they deposited several of the fragments in the pool, and late in the day, small objects began drifting to the surface. The clay dissolves, seems to be somewhat porous, and the moisture seeps through to what's inside. Recognize this? 
He fished in the pool and laid an inert insect on the bank. Cricket, observed Marlin. I remember. His thoughts reverted to a small creature that someone, he could not recall who, had resurrected from the sticky ooze back in that shadowy interior. This'll do the same, declared Duchesne. See, its legs are twitching already. Here's something larger. He fished out a bedraggled bird. Then, this is how it all came about, queried Marlin. He swept the landscape with an inclusive gesture. These birds, squirrels, lynx cow and the bull, you and I, sure thing, and the vegetation, the clay is rich in seeds, everything that blew into that pit stack. Duchesne raked the surface of the water and held the gather scam in his palm so that Marlin could see. Seeds, insects, and larvae must have been washing out and drying and blowing over the landscape, taking root for years. How many? Duchesne shrugged. Your guess is as good as mine. I think we'll find that the shell broke up along this stretch of coastline and all the life of the planet is concentrated here. It must have commenced releasing the life it brought as soon as the water reached it. But before that, how long? The clay's hardest rock. Dave, that's something to think about. I have an idea it was terribly long. That earth of ours, for all we know, man finished his evolution there. Billions of our kind were born and died while we lay in the chrysalis waiting for conditions to ripen. Worlds aren't finished in a day, unless you're thinking of cosmic days. Not even when it's a case of gathering up the debris of an asteroid belt and molding it into a planet. A new Earth. Marlin stared, his mind sought to envision the slow natural processes that would achieve such a result. It's not hard to conceive, continued Duchesne reflectively. Earth scientists generally agreed that the original life spores reached our system from distant parts of the galaxy. When you think of the distances and eons of time they had to traverse, our little moment of suspended existence fades into insignificance. You've been awake longer than I have. Marlin confessed dazedly. My rusty brain can't follow you. End of chapter 15